it might be just a little bit of an understatement to say that we live in a world that's divided. That there's not much mutual agreement between people in our world. It's always tempting to think that maybe our world is worse than it's ever has been, but that's usually an uninformed and myopic kind of viewpoint of our old world, of our own world, because there's always been places where it's been pretty crazy, pretty bad, pretty messed up. But even amongst all of the division that's in our world, and it seems like in the United States there's no middle ground anymore. There's no place where people gather in the middle and try to find reason. I'm not saying the middle is always the right place to be, but there's no place that that happens. But I would submit to you today that there is one thing that everyone in America seems to agree on, and that's there's a need for justice. There's a need for justice. How that works out is a little bit thorny, isn't it? But everywhere you turn, people are crying for justice. And ostensibly, this is something that we all do affirm by our cries to make sure that everyone knows that it's lacking. Some think it is just to allow men and women to identify with their preferred gender and live accordingly, while others say it is unjust to have men using women's restrooms and locker rooms and competing in women's sports. Some think it is it is just to enforce laws according to one's oppressed class so that the oppressors are held accountable at rates that are higher than those who have been the ones who are oppressing. While others say it is unjust to allow criminals to get away with committing crimes based on one's ethnicity or sexual preference. Some think it is unjust for poverty to exist and for some people to have more income than others, while others think it is unjust to force wealth redistribution while creating a welfare state that enslave the poor to the government. Some think it is unjust to allow man-made global warming to continue, while others think it is unjust to forbid certain forms of energy and technology while subsidizing others. Have I made my point? Now, don't hear those as political statements. Those are just observations of reality, are they not? Everyone is calling for justice. But the fly in the ointment is who gets to say what is just? That's what it boils down to, doesn't it? Whoever decides, whoever wins the narrative of what truth is, is the one who wins the narrative of what justice is. Because everyone has a reason for crying out for what they want to, want to have. Everyone has a reason for crying out for what they think is just. And yet that's where the division comes. Because there are more opinions and those opinions become increasingly diverse. And in some camps, increasingly separate themselves from the origin of true truth. Capital T, truth. Now we as believers, we have capital T, truth to stand on, do we not? And we're still divided. So what do we do about that? We still have arguments within our own tribes about what to do about these things. So my point today is not to have you go run to a tribe. By the way, we already are a tribe, right? We're united in one body with the scriptures as our goal and united to submitting to one another in this body. And what we submit to is the truth of the word as we hear it week in and week out. So for us, the capital T truth comes right from the word of God and we submit ourselves to it. We submit ourselves to each other as we learn it. We submit ourselves to each other as we, as we press in when somebody is learning it and, and not getting it clearly. We want everybody to be in unity on the major doctrines that we hold to. But Scripture still gives us the answer. Jesus decides what is just. And it flows from his character. And he is ruling and reigning according to his character in a just, righteous, and faithful manner, even today. And so we gather together knowing that justice is called for and knowing that justice is brought to us. What is just, what is right, what is faithful is brought to us in Scripture and that we are vessels of His to carry that out in society. Right? We, we are to be carrying out righteousness and justice and faithfulness according to the truth of the Word. 
Now, we don't do it perfectly like Jesus has done. We don't do it perfectly like the Old Testament points forward the Messiah would do and Jesus comes and fulfills. But we have passages of Scripture like this. God, he, that is God, has told you, O man, what is good. And what does Yahweh require of you but to do justice and to love kindness. And that word is that, that grand, beautiful, pregnant word, kesed in the, in the Greek, that is God's, used of God's covenant faithfulness. So we are to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. So if we're commanded to do it, has God provided us the way to do it? Absolutely, he has. So when we want to call things just or unjust in society, we are going to the scriptures. We are going to the picture of who Jesus is because Jesus is already ruling and reigning according to just principles. And our submission to him through his word allows us to challenge injustice and to sow righteousness and justice in our world. And so the Great Commission is spreading the gospel, yes, but the Great Commission is spreading the gospel so that justice begins to reign. Now, when that will fully reign, we could sit down and debate through lunch and dinner and breakfast and lunch and dinner and on and on ad, ad finitum. But what we can say truly is that Jesus is ruling and reigning. He is not cut out of the picture of what's going on now. So our task today is to learn about truth, to submit to that truth and apply that truth. And you go, okay, Pastor Rob, can't you just say that about every sermon? Yes. Does it ever change for us? No. We learn the truth. We learn our doctrine. We grow in our love for Jesus. So we grow in our devotion and then we work it out in our lives, which is our duty to do. Doctrine and devotion and duty all tied together for us. This is Isaiah's message for us today in hope. Remember, Isaiah has shifted back and forth between scenes of judgment and scenes of hope. And chapter 11, which is where we start today, is, is leading us into the end of the first full section of Isaiah. You didn't think we'd ever make it to the end of the first section. At least we can say we've, we're making it to the end of something in Isaiah, even if it's not all of Isaiah. But remember, we had chapter 1, which was an introduction to the introduction. And then chapters 2 through 11, or 2 through 5, were an introduction to Isaiah. Then we saw Isaiah's call in chapter 6, and his message begins. So we, we said the call happened before any of it, but the arrangement of the book gives us an introduction to the introduction, and then an introduction, then the call, and then he starts his book. And chapter 11 ends this first section. And what we have seen over and over is this movement between Judgment and hope. Judgment and hope. Well, after a few weeks of texts that were heavy on the judgment, today we move into one of those texts that are heavy on the hope. What was promised in Isaiah's day, fulfilled in Christ's first coming, and will be ultimately fulfilled in his second coming. So let's stand together as we read our text this morning. Isaiah chapter 11 now, chapter 11 is one unit, 1 through 16. It's too much for us to get into in one text. So we're going to cover verses 1 through 5 today and 6 through 16 next week. Some of the questions about the when will be answered today. Some of the when questions will be answered next week. But no, this is one of those sermons. If you remember a few years ago, I preached from, for Christmas sermons, four sermons on Isaiah, just the nine, six, just the names of God. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, everlasting father. Each one of those was one sermon. This could be one of those texts. It is so rich for us. But we're going to attempt to cover all five verses this morning and then six through 16 next week. So I'll read he, uh, Isaiah 11, verses one through five. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of fear of Yahweh. And his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. 
And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So in these verses, all the way to um, verse 16, actually, we are shown five characteristics of the Lord's branch and his rule. Five characteristics of the Lord's branch and his rule. This morning, we will look at three of those characteristics. The first characteristic of the Lord's branch and his rule is the Lord's branch is a fruitful Davidic king. Look right there at verse 1. There shall come forth, now let's just stop right there. There shall come forth. Isaiah's day, still future. Yes? Isaiah's writing to people in his day, and he's giving them the hope that something is going to happen in the future. There shall come forth. Now this, this when this thing comes forth, is the dividing line between Jews and Christians. People who are, are faithful Jews and people who are faithful Christians. The dividing line is when does this, when has this, what's about to be shown to us, come forth. And just a survey of practicing Jews today from all different camps shows us that there is a hopelessness. Just listen to a few. A few people who were asked for an interview for a magazine, what does the concept of the Messiah mean today? These are all Jewish, practicing Jewish people giving their answers. Amos Oz, a novelist, says, He may be around the corner, but that's where he should always be. In the Jewish tradition, sitting idly waiting for the Messiah is a sin. Rabbi Peter H. Schweitzer says, Years ago, a popular evangelical bumper sticker read, I found it. The Jewish version would read, I'm still looking for it. Harris Lenowitz, a literature professor, answered it this way. Who at different times in their life hasn't had a belief that someone, a Messiah, can help them and help the world? And that Messiah is the biggest answer to the biggest single question, does God care about me? Lucetta Logano, who is a reporter, says, people have stopped believing in God in the possibility of miracles, in the mystical, and in that most mystical belief of all, the idea that somebody's going to come along and make the world all better. I think that's a sad development of the modern world. You hear the hopelessness in these responses? Deb Margolin, playwright and professor, most people think the Messiah has already come, but Jews are waiting. It could be anybody. It's a very sexy idea. There's a blind date with the sacred that awaits you at any moment. Ruth Messenger, CEO of Jewish World Services. The Messiah doesn't connote that some, that some entity, deity, or event will suddenly arrive and change the circumstances in our life. That's a notion of childhood wish fulfillment. Just one more. Samuel Heiling, professor of sociology. For most Jews, the Messianic idea has receded. It's not on the top of the agenda, and they don't see history and as inexorably moving to that day. Well, of course they don't, because all of history inexorably moves from that day, doesn't it? Everything in the Old Testament looks forward to the first coming of Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection and ascension and everything after that time looks back to that. It's the most momentous event in history, not just for what God accomplished in that event, but for all the effects of that event that were brought forward. Isaiah is trying to prepare us, prepare his listeners for the time that that would be inaugurated. We receive this as understanding that this is the time that God, we are living in the time that God has inaugurated it. So there is a vast difference in thinking just with these words, there shall come forth. But what's going to come forth? Look at your text in 11.1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So here we have that poetic writing again. If you look just through chapter 11, my chapter 11 sits evenly on two pages. 
But if you look through, you'll see chapter 11 is full of poetry except for those middle verses 10 and 11. Both of those middle verses, 10 and 11, say, in that day, in that day. That anchors this. The rest of it is in poetry. So we always assess the genre that we're looking at, right? And if we look at the genre, it's poetry. And we realize that poetry carries with it parallelisms. And those parallelisms may say the same thing in different ways. They may say opposite things in different ways. It may be a statement that is magnified or made greater, intensified in the second way. It may, it, it, there are different things that it shows us in parallelism, and we have several of those to contend with today. One of those is here. And in one way, it's saying the same thing in verse 1, but yet another way, it's pointing us in different directions about the same thing. Look at what I mean. There comes forth a shoot... Okay, just, just picture a, a branch with its first leaf or first blossom coming off. The shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, everything in this is pointing us for a fulfillment of the promises to David and the promises to God's people that there will always be a, a, a ruler worthy of ruling on David's throne forever. Uh, Ron just read us one of those psalms that point us forward to that. But yet this is saying it in a way that says, hmm, why are we saying this way? A shoot from the stump of Jesse. So that is, that is pointing us Jesse, David's father, right? And you remember that story. Samuel goes and, and, and Saul has been rejected and God said Samuel to, to Bethlehem and he says, I'll choose my new king there. And when he gets, he's told to take uh, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. He's just an everyday guy with some sons, and so he calls them in, tells them to consecrate themselves, brings them in, and he looks at Eliab, the first son that comes before him, and he's, he's just a grand specimen of manhood, and he says, surely this may be the one. But God is silent. God says, that's not the one. I've rejected him. And the reason is given that man looks on the external but God looks on the internal. God knows men's hearts. And so it goes down through seven sons. None of those are right. Do you have any more? Well, I've got the young one out there tending the sheep. Bring him in, and that's the new king. So this is pointing us to the humble beginnings of the Messiah. Even in David's lineage, the humble beginnings of David, the youngest, the shepherd boy brought in from the field, ordained as king. So that's pointing us the shoot that comes from Jesse. Jesse's there, David follows him. But look at the next, the next part of that, verse 1. And a branch from his roots. So this looks back. So the roots of Jesse. So it's saying also that there's an eternal aspect of this one that's being spoken about. So right here, because it's, it's from Jesse's roots. So even, even what produces Jesse... This Messiah comes from that, from the roots that, that produces Jesse. One, looks for, one description looks forward, the other one looks backward. And we are already dealing with the picture of one who is human and divine. One who is human and divine. So we're already seeing a picture in the car, of the incarnation of Jesus Christ right here in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, with the, the shoot dealing with his human side, the roots, the, the branch from his roots dealing with his divine side. And remember, chapter 4, we've already seen the branch of the Lord, the branch of the Lord. We've already been introduced to this idea of the branch of the Lord. Chapter 11 kind of forms bookends with chapter 2. Remember back, let's just do this. Turn back to chapter 2. Let's remind ourselves of a couple of passages in this first introductory section of Isaiah. So we said we are moving from judgment to hope. So let's look at a couple of these hope passages. It's not all of them. Sometimes the remnants just referred to in passing in our text. But we want to look at these passages very briefly. I'm not commenting on them. I just want us to remind ourselves. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days. So we know the latter days are from begin at the cross. In the latter days, that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains. He shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. 
For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and he shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Oh, house of Jacob, come. Let us walk in the light of Yahweh. Now turn over to chapter 4, verse 2. Coming out of a, a message of judgment, chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch of Yahweh, the branch of the Lord, shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodshed, the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then Yahweh will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for a shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. One more. Chapter 9. The picture of hope in chapter 9 begins with a, with a glorious light shining on and being seen by those who are in darkness, in deep darkness, the, this light of hope for the remnant. And these people, that, that, those passages that are, that are um, quoted in the New Testament and applied to Christ and his coming, and some of the results in verse 3, 4, and 5 are given of what will happen when this light shines on, this, on the Gentiles. And look at verse 6. Why does all that happen? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. So I hope you're remembering that everything that we're learning about in our current passage in 11, 1 through 5, we have already interacted with at different levels in these other passages of hope coming back and forth between the passages of hope and judgment. So back in 11, 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruits. And this is the, the branch of the Lord. I, I, I don't want you to turn there unless you want to, but I want you to hear just a couple of other passages that deal with this out of the major prophets. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, we read these verses. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. And just a few passages, a few chapters later in chapter 33, we read these words. Jeremiah 33, beginning in verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So this is a common theme in the prophets to, to tell people that there is a promise of one that will reign on David's throne. And the amazing thing about this is that people would understand this as hopeful, even though they're hundreds of years past the time of David. There are hundreds of years. David is dead and buried at the time of Isaiah. David is dead and buried 400 years by the time of Jeremiah. 
No, none of the earthly kings after David in the scriptures were referred to as David or the son of Jesse. Only the Messiah and the Messianic prophecies refer to this future king as David or the son of Jesse. But long after his death, this is a, a, a note of hope. Listen to Hosea prophesying 250 years after David's reign at the same time as Isaiah in chapter 11. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king, and they shall come to fear Yahweh and to his goodness in the latter days. That's Hosea 3, 4, and 5. Jeremiah 30, verse 9 prophesying 400 years after David's reign. But they shall serve Yahweh their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Consider Ezekiel prophesying 400 years after David's reign, the same time as Jeremiah from chapter 34, verses 23 and 24. Ezekiel is rebuking the false shepherds, condemning them, the human shepherds of Israel's day, and promising that God himself would be their shepherd And he says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, Yahweh, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am Yahweh, I have spoken. So what I'm trying to do here is tell you that these nods to Jesse in this way, and it's going to get even better next week when we, when we find out in chapter 10 that, that this Messiah is also the root of Jesse. Not just a, a branch from the root, but he's also the root of Jesse. Chew on that for next week. Maybe you'll come to an answer that will, that will make next week's sermon even better in, because of your study. Multiple ways of referring to this one who is the promised Messiah who would sit on David's throne as the true true king. Listen to what, um, well, I hope you're going to listen to, yes, Alec Motier says this about these names. Alec Motier is probably my favorite commentator on Isaiah so far as I've done this study. When Jesus produces a shoot, it must be David. But to call the expected king the root of Jesse is altogether another matter, for this means that Jesse sprang from him. Listen, he is the root support and origin of the messianic family in which he would be born. According to Genesis 3.15, the human family is kept in being, notwithstanding the edict of death, that is the curse, because within it, the conquering seed will be born. So within humanity, the conquering seed that will conquer Satan will be born. In the same way, here, the Messiah is the root cause of his own family tree, pending the day when, within that family, he will shoot forth. In the Old Testament, this is a dilemma awaiting resolution. There's much more that we could say about this. Remember that I told you we could preach five sermons. I'm not going to do that. We're going to push forward. Can we do that? Look at the last phrase of verse 1. The branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So this root, this shoot, this messianic figure, when the Messiah comes, there will be fruit from his ministry. It will not be just that he just comes. His ministry will bear fruit. And we're about to learn what some of that fruit is because the Lord's branch is a fruitful Davidic king. But secondly, the second characteristic, the Lord's branch rules with the endowment of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 2. And, so this, this messianic figure, the root and shoot, will come And the Spirit, and I hope your Bible has capital S there, the Spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him. So the Holy Spirit comes and rests upon this Messianic figure. Now, the the Holy Spirit comes and rests upon people in the Old Testament for their service, right? Holy Spirit landed on David right after that passage that I told you about where he was chosen from Jesse's sons. The Holy Spirit, God sends it to him. God sends his spirit to Moses. He sends his spirit to those who were the creative people building the temple. His spirit is active in the Old Testament. But there is something different about the spirit, the Holy Spirit landing on the Messiah. 
And look what it says. The Spirit of Yahweh, so this is the third person of the, of the Trinity, shall rest upon him. Now, this is the mark of the Messiah in Isaiah. The only person that the Spirit rests upon in Isaiah is the Messianic figure. All the way through the book. When the Spirit rests upon, it's the Messiah in different language talking about the Messiah coming. And you can, you can look at, at um, verses like chapter 42, verse 1, or chapter 61, verse 1, to see those um, other types of references. Now, we have this sixfold um, Actually, three pairs and then a summary statement of, of what happens when the Spirit rests on this messianic figure. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. So when we say this, we're not saying that the Spirit, we're not saying, look at the Spirit. He's full of wisdom and understanding. Although that would be a true statement. Amen? The Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit is God. But the purpose of this passage is to say that when the Spirit rests upon him, what he gives to the Messiah is the perfection of the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. So his endowment on the Messiah is, first of all, wisdom and understanding. We see these in pairs, and they're related, each pair, but also all of these are related together, and they kind of overlap. So we have wisdom and understanding. Wisdom being that ability to use knowledge rightly. It presumes knowledge, but you can have a lot of knowledge and be a fool. Amen? So wisdom presumes the right use of knowledge. But it also is understanding or discernment. So it's, it's, it's knowing what to do with knowledge, but it's also the ability to assess situations and have discernment. We're going to see that work out a little bit in the second part of our text today. So the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding. This is the mark of leaders in, in Deuteronomy chapter 1 when Moses is recounting what has already happened and he describes what happened when his father Jethro said, you need to appoint leaders because you can't handle all of this. He summarizes those leaders by saying, God told me to appoint leaders that are wise and discerning. They have wisdom and understanding. So this, this is, these are marks of leaders that we find through the, through the scriptures. People that have knowledge, and we'll get to knowledge in a minute, know how to use it rightly and have discernment in the situation that they were in, that they are in, being able to discern what to do and what is right and what is wrong. I would say this is a primary need in our world today, yes? Discernment discernment to know truth, but not just to know truth, but to have that truth and know how to wisely implement it, which is where we move into the next pair. The spirit of not only wisdom and understanding, but the spirit of counsel and might. In chapter 36, verse 5, these two words are also translated um, strategy and power. That kind of captures it too, counsel and might. So the ability to know what's right and wisely use it, discernment of when to apply that and what is right based on what you are discerning, but also how to establish the strategy, how to, how to develop the counsel that you give to other people, but not just to do that, but to have the power to carry it out. You see how we moved into the divine here from the human. Now, you and I could have discernment, we can even have knowledge. We can even have wisdom. We might even be able to discern counsel, but we may not have the power to carry that out past our own lives. But the Messiah, he is almighty. Remember, he is mighty God. So and he is also wonderful counselor from chapter 9, right? So he is endowed with counsel and might as the wonderful counselor, mighty God that we have already met, we have already come into contact with. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. So here we have the knowledge that's required even to have the wisdom that's in the first pair. And the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh. The right, reverent, worshipful response to Yahweh. So this is the son, the son of man, as the New Testament, especially in Mark and the Gospels, he's called the son of man who is in a right relationship with his father. And we see that so often Jesus comes and what does he say over and over in John? I came to do my father's will. 
It's not time for me to do these things yet because my father hasn't deemed it so. He comes to do the will of his father. And even at his baptism, what do we see? The spirit of the Lord descending upon Jesus of Nazareth as the God-man, as the incarnate one. When the spirit of the Lord descends upon him, that's what this passage is talking about, that this is the Holy Spirit's endowment for the Messiah to do what the Messiah is called to do, and that is to be the perfect judge Proverbs 1 tells us what? The fear of the Lord is the what? The beginning of knowledge. So this inverts those, that this Messiah is the one who has the spirit of knowledge, and that's about everything. This is capital T truth, right? That Jesus stands for, that flows from his perfect character, and the fear of the Lord. Now, let me just stop here and say, all of these things are things that we are capable of doing. We may not be able to do them perfectly. We may not be able to do them at all times, but we have the scriptures. We have the spirit. If we're believers, we have the spirit indwelling us, leading us into truth. We have that scripture that he's leading us into. That's why it's so important to be in the word all the time, right? It's not just, it's not just Sunday school answers to read your Bible. It's the key to Christian living to know what truth is, that we are in the scriptures. I tell people all the time, well, if you don't memorize Scripture, how the Holy Spirit going to call anything back to your remembrance? It's going to be pretty pitiful when the only thing the Spirit has to call back to your remembrance is Genesis 1-1 and John 3-16. Those are important verses, but might there be other things the Spirit would call back to you if you hid God's Word in your heart and devoted yourself to applying those? So this is the outcome of this. We are people who can act with wisdom. We are people that have discernment. God tells us in the book of James that if we want wisdom, we just ask him for it. And if we believe that he is a God who gives it, and he is a God who is wise, he gives it to us. And if we don't ask for it, we don't have any right to complain that he hasn't given it to us. So wisdom, discernment, counsel. I mean, this is, this is what discipleship is about for us, isn't it? It is it, counsel and, 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 and wisdom and understanding is discerning what's going on with each other and helping people apply the word to it. This is what happens when we go out into the world and we serve, whether we're running for government office or serving on a school board or, or leading out in a homeschool situation or, or leading out in work. We are the people that should have the wisdom. We should have the knowledge. And as God grants us what we now call right or wrong platforms, we have more ways that we can exercise that knowledge and he gives us more might to do that as long as it's his strength because it's his power that works through our weaknesses, right? So when we get all full of ourselves, we are back in the prideful way that Isaiah has been rebuking for chapter after chapter after chapter. Do we have the knowledge and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of that knowledge, coming to faith in Christ, trusting him for all that he gives us. But look at verse 3. Verse 3 ends, verse 2 kind of trails into verse 3 before it, things shift. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So not only will, he, will the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the Lord fall upon the Messiah, this will be his delight. This will be what pleases him. The word delight has its origins in smelling something, smelling an aroma. I, I, I pulled my starter out of the, free, the fridge the other day and baked bread. There's nothing more pleasing to me than that, than to have the work of all the bread dough go into the oven and that begin to fill the house. You have your own images, don't you? We're just thinking, I don't know what it would be, what you grew up with. We're coming into a season with, with the most prized and most hated smell in the world, aren't we? Pumpkin spice. <laughs> but that can be tied to memories for you, right? That can be tied to good memories or bad memories. That every time you smell certain smells, you're brought to delight if those are reminding you of good times. Well, the, the, the delight of the Messiah is in. The delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Everything the Messiah does, he does because he's delighting and fearing and obeying and worshiping the Lord. And this is a, a, a life uh, posture for us, is it not? We, this is what, we talk to people all the time about making biblical decisions. And when we talk about making biblical decisions, the glory of God is what is paramount. It's what, it's what drives everything. If you're making decisions and your heart is wrapped up in one decision or another, then when God redirects your path, which he promises to do, 
If he redirects your path and your, your passion and your love and your happiness and sustenance is based in that decision, when God redirects your path, you come undone. But if you keep your sustenance in the Lord, if you keep your, your fear of the Lord, if you keep that as your delight, then when you think you're supposed to head this direction and God reorders your path, you go, thank you, Lord, for putting me in the center of your will. And now that is what gives you the most delight because you were following him. This is what the Messiah models for us. That's why Jesus, when he comes, he comes born in a manger to die on a cross because it's the will of the Father to provide salvation through him for his people. This is what the Messiah comes to do. Now, I want you to look at this, the way this, this uh, translates here in verse 3. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. That finishes up the point that I have made. The Lord's branch rules with the endowment of the Holy Spirit. Now, as we move into the third characteristic, the Lord's branch rules with righteousness and faithfulness. Look how this connects together. This, this word delight is actually a verbal noun. So Alec Motier, the, the commentator I told you a minute ago that I benefited so much, he says to, to capture this idea and how this connects together, by his delighting, so when, when we read it in the text, it's, and his delight, noun, but it's actually a verbal noun. So by his delighting, in the fear of Yahweh, he will. So it's his delighting in the fear of Yahweh that flows from all this endowment of the Holy Spirit that that works its way out in the way he rules. So the ruler who fears the Lord will rule like this. And the Messiah is our model for this. The Messiah is where we see Jesus himself and how he rules and reigns is where we see this worked out. Well, let's look at this. 3b, after and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This starts our next section. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Now, that's giving us one concept, isn't it? That parallelism. And this is the way we have to judge, yes? We have to judge by what our eyes see and what our ears hear. What are the facts on the ground before us? And we trust that God sovereignly is ordaining those facts. And so we assess them, and before we decide what counsel, that discernment of what God shows us on the ground, what our eyes see, what our ears hear, then we form our counsel and we execute that when we have any role in making a judgment. But the Messiah isn't bound by that. The Messiah has the gifting of the Holy Spirit in such a way that he's not bound And it says clearly, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. There's something greater going on in the Messiah. This David, this David, or this Solomon. Remember Solomon? Solomon also asked for these same gifts of wisdom and discernment. Remember that? He wanted to be the wise king, and God granted him that endowment. And he made great wise decisions until he didn't. Right? So humanness is going to get in the way of this, but our pursuit is of the glory of God at all times. So we are seeing that this one, the Messiah, does not judge merely by... It's not, this isn't saying that he doesn't look at what's happening and he doesn't hear what's happening. It's saying that's not the sole things that he uses. He has this ability to see and to hear. Remember, in, in John, at the end of John chapter 2, there were people that became to follow him, and Jesus did not endear himself to all of them because he knew the hearts of men, right? This is the same way Yahweh said to Samuel. He said... Men judge on the outside, I see the hearts of men. This is what the Messiah does. This is what Jesus does. Jesus is able to look and see into the hearts of men. He is able to look and to see when they're saying one thing, but their hearts are doing another. He just peels it open because he knows. He's able to see people under trees when he's not there. He is able to to discern the hearts of, of people like the woman at the well, yeah, that's right. It, he is not your husband, but he, you've had all these other husbands. He didn't know those in a human terms, but he was able to discern and judge because he is the Messiah. He is God. The Messiah is God. This is Isaiah's point to say Yahweh is here and he is good. Your hope comes in when he sends another if we could fill it up with all of our theology, another person of the Trinity to carry out what Yahweh is already doing here. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or 
decide disputes by what his ears hear. Here's what another commentator, E.J. Young, says. His, his judgments will not be based upon the ordinary sources of information. Ordinary sources of information open to men. Namely, what men see and what they hear. Such means, the eyes and the ears, can bring at best but an outward impression. For absolute justice, catch that phrase, for absolute justice, there must be absolute knowledge. One that cannot be derived merely by these two regular and ordinary sources of information. Step by step, as it were, the veil is being removed from the figure of this king, and we are learning that not only in his human nature is he miraculously equipped, but that he is also himself a divine person. So I think he's right in capturing this, this, this unveiling of the Messiah before us, all of which we've seen in hints that we've already read in Messiah, about the Messiah so far. But move to verse 4, another aspect of his ruling with righteousness and faithfulness. Instead of only by what he hears and what he sees, there's our little adversity in verse 4, but... With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Two ways of saying the same thing. With righteousness and equity he will judge the poor who are the meek of the earth. Now, part of that is saying he is not going to give them any favor just because they're poor or just because they're meek. He judges how? With righteousness and with equity. So part of that is saying that, but part of it is saying he's not going to abuse the authority either. Remember what was going on just in the last chapter, verse, chapter 10, verses 1 and 2? Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make their fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of judgment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom, to whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? So the people of God, God's rulers, are not doing this. And they're being called to an account by Isaiah for not doing this, for ruling in wrong ways. But when the Messiah comes, you see why this is hope. When the Messiah comes, he will be the righteous one. And why, is he, why does he judge with righteousness? Because he is righteous, which we'll find out at the, in verse 5. He is righteous. And we learned right at the beginning of the book of Isaiah that this is what Israel failed to do. Turn back to chapter 1. Turn back to chapter 1 and look at verse 21. Remember, this is the introduction to the introduction and God revealing the hearts and motives of the people to them and why they stand open to judgment. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. You see justice and righteousness right there? The people have always been called to act because they're God's people. And they used to be that. God gave them, equipped them for that. He, he gave them the ability to do that. And you hear the past tense. They were a faithful city. They did have righteousness lodging in her. Verse 22. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companies of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless. And the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore... And he goes on to say what he will do because of this sinfulness. When the Messiah comes, he turns that around in his rule and in his reign. Look what else it says in verse 4. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Another set of parallelism here where the striking the earth and killing the wicked are referring to the same thing and rod of his mouth and breath of his lips are referring to the same thing. This is the language that Psalm 33 uses for God creating. He creates with the breath of his mouth. This is the language in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 where we're told that, that the Messiah, the, that Jesus in his second coming will smote or kill the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth. And I want you to turn now to Revelation 19, 
This and one more passage is all you'll have to turn to. Revelation 19, keep your finger in Isaiah. When Jesus comes, in the book of Revelation, it's described to us with these terms. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. John writes, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, you see the emphasis here in 19, uh, uh, Revelation 19 that, we're already, that we've seen so early in, in Isaiah and see in Isaiah 11. He's called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come! Gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Notice, notice, salvation comes to every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, and destruction for God's enemy comes to the entire lot as well. God judges with equity and righteousness. Verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun. No, verse 19, I'm sorry, I went to the wrong verse. Verse 19, and I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image those two were thrown into alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. If I'm not preaching all that. Go find a sermon on our website if you want to know what all that means. I'm drawing your attention to this language is what's used when we're expecting the Lord to come a second time. He comes a second time to judge. He comes a second time to gather his people from the four corners of the earth. He comes a second time to set up the new heavens and new earth where we will reign with him in righteousness forever. And it's the same language that is being used. One more verse to deal with in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So two ways of saying that he is girded with righteousness and faithfulness. This is his character, endowed by the Spirit, perfected in him because he is fully God. When he shows up on earth, he is fully man as well. He sits seated at the right hand of the Father now, fully God and fully man, interceding for us. But this is the one who is endowed with the righteousness and faithfulness to judge in this way. So this picture of the Messiah, he comes to judge the judgment and hope that are coming back and forth in the book of Isaiah are meted out in this Messiah who comes to save the lost and condemn the wicked by the same righteousness and the same justice that the Spirit endows him with. And this is why we see God working so faithfully. And we've seen it in Isaiah, and it's alluded to here, that the same, although the metaphor is not used, God working in judgment against his enemies, he is also preserving a remnant from which the people of God are safe. The same fire that destroys purifies. The same act, all those acts are righteous and they're just because he is righteous and just. And so this is our marching orders as well. The Messiah has come, born in a manger, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death on the cross, raised again on the third day, seated at the right hand of the Father, and the call to all of us is trust in him. 
Repent of your sin. Repent of your self-righteousness that you think you can become righteous on your own and trust in the one who has become righteousness for us, whose righteousness is credited to our account because of his perfect life, because he was always full and delighting in the fear of his Father and doing the will of his Father, which was preordained by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, before time even began that this would happen. And this is our marching orders. And just as he is girded with, you know, that idea of being girded with a belt, ready for battle, ready for action, this is because he's fruitful, remember? He doesn't just appear. He appears, and his appearance causes things. It, it shows forth righteousness. He judges according to uh, what he knows about men, his perfect knowledge. And so we are sent out with the gospel. We are sent out with the keys of heaven, right? The keys of the kingdom. We are sent out with that. We have the gospel. We are preaching the gospel. What, and, and when we preach the gospel and people repent of their sins and trust in him, we have the authority to say, you have been saved. And now come and walk with us and bear fruit. Just like our Messiah is fruitful. Just like Jesus is fruitful. Come walk with us and bear fruit. Let's close by looking at Ephesians 6. I want you to notice some of the same language that's here in this armor of God passage. Because we are the ones who are called to do justice, to love loving kindness, mercy, to love that, to walk humbly before our God. We are the ones called by the Holy Spirit and we are put in union with Christ. And when we're in union with Christ, all of his blessings are ours. We are seated in the heavenly places with him, Paul says earlier in the book of Ephesians. And so if, if the perfect character of Christ, that we have his attributes in us, it's not perfect Yet, because we're not in heaven, we're still fighting sin. Sin is still here. But those attributes, he's working them through us in the Holy Spirit. That's the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit working in us. And so we are in a constant battle with sin. We're not in a battle with those who we disagree with. We are divided with the world right now. We should be divided with the world. The nonsense is being put forth is, is against God. It's against his plan. It's against his character. We should be um, divided with them. But that division is meted out from us in bearing fruit, and they are not our enemies, right? They are they're, they're captive. We are burdened for their souls because they are captive by the evil one, and they do everything their father, the devil, says to do. Now, God in his sovereign hand is allowing that to happen right now, and he's raising up the church to stand against it. And it is a battle that we're called into to be on the front lines of and to stand firm. And if we die, we die because we'll be with the Lord. And this is how we do it, Ephesians 6. And I'm just going to close by reading this with no more comment. Beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you, this is plural you here, that you, that is we, may be able to withstand, to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. The Messiah has come and bears fruit in perfection. He sent us out to bear fruit in the world that's lost and dying. And the enemies are not the people. 
The enemy is the evil one. But we are functioning in truth and faithfulness and righteousness when we're trusting in his word, in his power, and preaching the gospel to all nations. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are for the truth of your word that we're constantly met in Isaiah with Jesus. An Old Testament prophet writing and ministering years before Christ comes. And yet what we see is Christ clearly, unambiguously, in all his glory, promised in Isaiah, fulfilled in time and space, revealed in the New Testament. And this is the marching orders that you have given us. You have told us to go out in the midst of a world that is, that is dying with the truth of the gospel. You've told us not to be of that world, but to be in that world. So it doesn't overwhelm us because we're not transformed by the world. We're not, we're not conformed to the world. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we might know what is the good and pleasing will of God. So we see it, Father, this morning in our scriptures. We pray that you would make it real in our life. That as we go through this world, Lord, and we're tempted to be overwhelmed, we are tempted to give in, we are tempted to, to pull back and hide and, 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 and be modern-day monks. And Father, make us realize that we are on the front lines of battle because that's where Jesus is. And when you finish your redemptive work, he will come again. So let us be faithful, Father. And in the scheme of things, we know that that is not very long, that life is short, and even if it's long for us, it is still short in the scheme of things. So every day, we are one step closer to being in the new heaven and new earth. Every day, we are one step closer to being with you. Every day, we can tell ourselves that we are almost home. So give us the, the faithfulness, Father, to be fully clad in the armor that you have given us, to have truth and righteousness and compassion leading us in the way that you would do what you intend to do. You would get the glory and you would, we would see souls saved, societies turned, churches turned back from, from error and more churches planted. We ask you, Father, to do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.